Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we are honored we have Mark Vonnegut, Dr. Mark Vonnegut, uh, and Ed, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, this is going to be a great conversation, Ron. And, and hey, kudos to you for getting the new opening correct. I was I was a little bit worried about it, but you you, you nailed it. So. Oh no no, I just plagiarized from you last week. So. All right, very good. <laughs> All right, excellent. Well, let me read uh, Dr. Mark's biography. It's short. Probably it doesn't. I know it doesn't do him justice. But Dr. Mark Vonnegut went to Harvard Medical School. He lives with his wife and son in Milton, Massachusetts, where he continues to practice primary care pediatrics. He's the author of Just Like Someone Without Mental Illness, Only More So, and the book we'll be discussing today, The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics. Dr. Mark, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this book, and and I want to ask you this because I'm always curious. I'm kind of a doctor. Uh, I'm very curious about doctors, so I read a lot of biographies of ER doctors and brain surgeons. I just find it fascinating because there's so many lessons for the rest of us professionals. And when did you know and when did you figure out you wanted to be a doctor? I It was something I wanted to do when I was a child. Um, then the 60s happened uh, and started a commune in British Columbia. And we all sort of expected the economy to collapse and the world to end. Uh, and when it didn't, we, I, I looked in the mirror and I saw a guy in his mid-20s without a job. And so <laughs> I, uh, I said, geez, I should have been a doctor. And um, so I, I, uh, I got lucky. I went to UMass Boston and uh, forever ever grateful to that, to that place. And... Uh, and then very, very uh, grateful that Harvard took me in. And, and you even say that no one thought that you'd get into medical school because you were older than most of the students and you didn't have the greatest grades. I mean, but you, but you got in. Yep. I was, I, was, I was, they were looking for variety at that time. I think they were tired of the, the kids who had never missed a multiple choice uh, <laughs> test and had all been pre-meds. So a religion major who would who would uh, who would who had been a good hippie and and also I think it truly was because I could write and I had uh, published a couple articles in Harper's and the Village Voice, but they were looking for variety and I was variety. That's great. Yeah, writing seems to be a lost art among certain sectors of the population. You, you wrote in the book, there's nothing romantic or outdated about how we ran our practice 40 years ago. We provided accessible, affordable, high quality care, and we made a living at it. I mean, you even talked about being able to pay your student loans after 18 months. And, and your student loans were taken out in the 70s when interest rates were 18%. 
Um, and then you say this, the job of the doctor is to take care of patients. We did a better job of it 40 years ago. How so? And, and why has it changed? I think because uh, the patient was king. Our job was to take good care of patients. And if we uh, didn't do so, they would go to other, uh, other, other doctors. Um, and so our job was to take care of patients. The hospital's job was to take care of us. And um, I would say at that time, 90% of what I did and 90% of what hospitals did was to look after the needs and medical concerns of patients. And now that number in my practice and in most hospitals is down around 50% because of all the um, extraneous things uh, that I don't believe add anything to uh, uh, better medical care. Uh, but there are things we have to do to be paid now that didn't, didn't used to exist. Right. You have an entire bureaucracy just to get paid medical billers and coders and and everything, yeah, that's really demoralizing in some way. I, I remember one doctor saying, the, the insurance companies are so involved in my practice, I feel like they're practicing medicine without a license. They are indeed doing that. Uh, it's, it's very, very, I think people uh, come to see doctors because they have very real problems. And doctors have been to medical school and work very, very hard to figure out what, if anything, can be done. And then to have on top of that an insurer say, but you didn't fill out the prior authorization or this or that um, is just, you know, it's an extra step, which is, which can be, um, can be heartbreaking for the doctor and, and, uh, and health threatening, even life threatening to, uh, to patients. My overhead per visit, I have to say, used to be six roughly $6 um, because we operated very, very efficiently. That same overhead now is around $100. And uh, most of that is attributable to our having to comply uh, with and meet so-called performance metrics uh, put on us um, by the insurers. When it was $6 a visit, it was easy to give care away. Uh, and we certainly weren't, weren't going to chase anybody for $6. And um, it was actually good public relations uh, for the community to say, you know, they didn't chase my cousin when he couldn't pay. Right. Well, you know, you describe in 1968, and we're talking about, what, 54 years ago or so, how the average family spent about 200 bucks per year for medical care, including doctors, hospitals, medications, and health insurance. And Dr. Mark, I can remember those days. I mean, I was born in 62. I had a pediatrician. I had to go in for nurse knee surgery in the 70s. And my dad didn't have health insurance. And yet, it, you know, it didn't put us into bankruptcy. It had to be affordable. When patients were paying out of pocket, um, if we had charged more than 10, 15 or $20 a visit, uh, our patients would have gone to somebody who did. Um, and there was natural cost control. If a prescription cost more than $10, it, it, you know, people couldn't afford it. So the same amoxicillin that costs less than $10 now, um, those same antibiotics that cost a hundred dollars, you know, the, it's just, uh, 
you know, there were the because the the patient was in charge and making the choices, things had to be affordable. Yeah, that's a great point. And and this is another angle that I really appreciated you talking about in the book. You said back in those days there was very little unnecessary care back then. There's a lot of it now. Why is that? I think there there are several reasons. Um, again, when the patient and I were deciding what to do, it would be very direct. Um, so for a well visit, if the you know if the patient just needed a physical to be able to play football, um, that would take very very little time. But now, if I have to do a behavioral health inventory, I have to verify insurance, I have to make a copy of their insurance card, I have to collect a copayment. It's virtually illegal for me to take care of somebody without taking a copayment, and on and on and on. I, um, I have a, a staff of 27 people, and it, it, it's ridiculous. Three doctors when I started, we had three full-time doctors back when full-time was five days a week. <laughs> but, uh, and we, had, we shared one all-purpose employee. We kept our books on legal pads with carbon paper. Uh, everybody paid us. And uh, as I say, we were doing what we expected to do. We were performing a useful service for patients and we were making a living. Nobody goes into pediatrics to get rich. Right. And how much does defensive medicine, you know, the, the risk of being sued, malpractice claims, go into that unnecessary care? Elsewhere, I think it, a lot of it does. Because if you are seeing a doctor you've never seen before who does not have a relationship with you, there's a lack of trust. If I've taken care of your aunts and uncles and your parents, and um, you know, I, I pretty much know they're not going to sue me. They know, you know, um, they know I'm doing my best. And there are lots of times, and I describe them in the book, where my um, best guess about what was going to happen was just flat out wrong. But my patients, uh, you know, understand, and they want me to get it right. I honestly think that some people in an adversarial system hope the doctor screws up because mm -hmm. then they'll make a million dollars. Right, right. I, I practice, and I, I think within my practice, there's very, very, very little uh, defensive medicine that goes on. And I think if things were set up correctly, um, so patients felt that they, you know, they didn't have to wait eight hours to be seen or whatever, and they thought people were really there to serve us. Uh, a lot of the lawsuits and a lot of the threats of lawsuits would just go away. Right. And you also said that robots can do checklists and templates. Doctors and nurses shouldn't have to. You're not a big fan of electronic medical records, are you? I actually was when when it started. I was actually involved in some of the uh, how should these things be designed, and I wanted them to be designed as a book where you could open different chapters if you wanted details. Um, and I adopted medical records like uh, ten years before they were required. Um, because it has enormous potential to make medicine safer. Um, but 
the what has happened is they have now become uh, billing machines that that are weaponized by insurers and big hospitals um, and they've also gone from one my first medical record cost a thousand dollars per doctor um, to buy and 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 take care of um, they are now in the billion dollar range I believe um, Mass General to which I owe a lot of my education and the Brigham um, bought a system that was $3 billion. That $3 billion has to come from patients ultimately. Where else is it gonna come from? Right, right, I remember. So, so, so we've gone from you know, things that cost thousands of dollars, um, thousand dollars a year and to purchase the whole system to you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars per doctor. And that's right. another reason overhead is up to 50%. Right. I remember hearing one doctor complain that um, he spent so much time in, you know, in front of the EHR that he's becoming a better typist than doctor. Uh, <laughs> and it's probably reducing patient care to some extent. Well, Dr. Mark, this is fantastic. Unfortunately, we're up against our first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check us out on our Patreon channel where you can subscribe and listen to our content commercial free and also get access to our bonus episodes. That's at patreon.com slash TSOE. And now a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh, oh my fraud. fraud. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. 
were tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Dr. Mark Vonnegut. And Dr. Mark, I wanted to, to ask you about this. You, you write, quote, mine is the last generation to experience a time when it was still possible for doctors to be their own bosses. You could put your name on a sign and open up your own practice. I did not realize this until we had Dr. Paul on previously, that 70% of general practitioners anyway, and probably even most physicians, are actually employees. That's correct. Why, why is this the case? This is the case because of a misperception um, that uh, independent doctors were doing unnecessary procedures uh, to increase their income under the fee-for-service for system. Uh, doctors inherited this system uh, and worked within it, but very, very few doctors um, were actually greedy enough to do unnecessary things. Part of what we learn in medical school and as residents is to do effective medicine, not extra medicine. And so the uh, part of the, the legislation which allowed insurance companies to be run on a for-profit basis was for HMOs to pay doctors uh, on salary under the mistaken belief that this would save money. Which leads me to my, my next question, and, and um, there was a, I can't remember the, the, the gentleman's name, but he wrote an article, I think it was in The Atlantic, and the article was called How American Healthcare Killed My Father. I think he then subsequently turned it into a book. But one of his main points is, is that we have sadly equated health insurance with health care, and that it, it, when we really think about it, insurance shouldn't pay for the mundane. Car insurance doesn't pay for gasoline or oil changes. Um, we, insurance should be for the catastrophic, for something that's really bad. Everything else should really come under a rubric of, you know, pay for service or even, um, and I think Ron's going to ask you about this, or maybe I'll step in, a subscription to the doctor, perhaps. That's absolutely, that's absolutely uh, how things should be. And the reason medical care was of such a higher quality, it was much more accessible, and it was affordable, was that insurance was not involved. Employer-based insurance started as a good idea. Um, corporations loved it because it was easier and less taxes to give employees uh, benefits like insurance rather than uh, raises. And it was also a way to hold on to employees who were there, you know, couldn't leave their jobs as easily because they would lose their benefits. But it has turned around to become, you know, a major expense of any company, including mine, uh, to insure your employees. And they are getting less and less care for higher and higher premiums. And it's essentially uh, a monopoly system now. And uh, the insurers can plug in pretty much any number they want. Well, it, curiously, did you know it actually started because of wage and price controls in, during World War II? That since they could, since people couldn't increase uh, their people's salaries, they had to try to lure talent on. And one of the things they did was add this insurance benefit, um, 
right? And then, then I think it was 1955, there's tax law that said, you're right, that, that employers could take it as a tax deduction, whereas if I just pay for my medical care, it is, I have to pay with after-tax dollars. Do you think that would be one potential remedy? I think John McCain proposed it when he was running for president and got shut down immediately. <laughs> there are many good ideas. The, 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 the problem is it creates a whack-a-mole system, whereas if we... Uh, as we should control the price of insulin, the price of something else will go up. Um, and I think a more direct way to do things is to pick out things, uh, parts of employer-based um, healthcare, whatever, which you can show harm patients and just have the goal of, let's get rid of everything that harms patients. And if a medical device harms patients, it can't become part of care. If there's a surgeon who is, patients aren't doing well, that he should lose his license. If there is something like a co-payment or a prior authorization, which is in fact hurting patients, we took an oath that we weren't supposed to do that and that should not be part of medical care. So uh, unnecessary administrative costs costs as much as unnecessary uh, medical procedures, probably more. I want to turn your attention to, to something that, that I, uh, I, I, I teach a course on consulting theory and practice, so business consulting theory and practice. And, and one of the things that was shared with me by a guy by the name of Peter Block, who is a, a, a great uh, author about uh, th this this topic is what he, was he stole from the medical profession what he what he calls the presenting problem axiom, which is that we should never accept the problem which presents itself as the problem without doing your first your own, your own diagnosis, and I would I would I wanted to ask you what is that something that that you learned in medical school or as part of your residency and is that something that's still taught and ingrained in physicians today. No, yes, it was a huge was. part of what I was taught. I was taught that 90% uh, of the diagnosis was going to come from what the patient told me. And the physical exam would probably confirm uh, what I thought the diagnosis was. And the last few percentage points would come from the lab. Now, um, too much medical care is what a friend of mine called uh, you troll the patient through the lab and you see what bites. So you send off enough tests and it's like fishing for striped bass or bluefish. And if something bites, you know, if the blood sugar is too high, say, oh, maybe it's diabetes. So you do it backwards and then you start doing the physical exam and taking the history to confirm what the lab told you. Is this because, you know, I, and I've heard this, this said, uh, I, I've got, you know, teenage children. I remember when they were a little bit younger, we, we, would, we would often hear of people saying, well, no, I wanted my doctor to do something. Is there pre pressure from some patients today, or especially parents, for doctors to do something? You've got to do something. Absolutely. And again, if you actually know patients and have been in the same community for a long time, um, there's less of that pressure. And over half 
of the children I saw who were diagnosed as having ear infections in minute clinics or urgent care um, did not have ear infections. I can look in there and tell you, but that is a quick and easy way for somebody to say, you have an ear infection, here's your antibiotics. Whereas I can take the time to say, you do not have an ear infection. And even if you do have an ear infection, we can get away without treating, you know, um, 60, 70% of ear infections uh, without antibiotics. That is not going to happen in an emergency room, an urgent care, or a minute clinic um, because it takes time to explain to somebody why you aren't going to do something. And of course, this has created, I think, a very real societal problem of the overprescription of anti antibiotics and then this you know, constant need for even stronger and stronger antibiotics as people don't complete the course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And then only pass on the really strong uh, germs to other other folks, right? So it's it's a big problem. And there are health health consequences which we're only starting to discover of what happens to kids who uh, get amoxicillin in the first year of life. It's not it's it's not entirely benign. Um, and when we you know, there are lots of things that have become standard practice, which are unnecessary, and they're done for the convenience, ultimately, I think, of the insurers. Um, the fact that um, most doctors have, you know, 10 minutes to see you at most, 40% of that time is spent with them clicking data into a laptop, um, and, um, and, and there's very little eye-to-eye -eye contact. And what the doctor's trying to do is to come up with a number or a diagnosis that he can click into his machine, and that's his job. The peripheral part of his job and, and what he learned in medical school and residency is how to take care of people. Yeah, and instead it's, it's diagnosis code 2587C or whatever that becomes the, right. the focal point. Wow, this is a well. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift gears on you, um, and we've only got about uh, two minutes or so, which is a bit, little bit unfair for this question. So you can go a little bit over. Um, share the story of Anna Maria with our listeners. I think it was my favorite in the book. Anna Maria was how medicine used to be practiced. A girl shows up at Logan International Airport with a sign pinned to her chest that says, "I have bone cancer. Take me to Mass General." She's taken to Mass General. She gets world-class care. Um, it, you know, things happened like a doctor and the head of anesthesia, when she was in pain, were in the room with her. I, I asked for help. And, you know, it wasn't an uh, intensivist or a hospitalist or whatever. The head of anesthesia came there with me to try to, you know, meet this child's needs. So that's... You know, the ability to give away care is something that doctors and hospitals have have lost. And it's, you know, it's it's often the appropriate thing to do. Well, I just love love the story. You said, you know, this this girl was obviously put on a plane <laughs> in Cape, Cape Verde so, somehow. Um, the, the, the flight attendants made sure that she was put in a cab. The cab took her with absolutely no qualms about it, knowing that they would get paid by the t when they, by Mass General when they arrived at Mass <laughs> General. <laughs> the, 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 the level of trust in the system that that girl couldn't get to this through security. No. 
and and uh, and she would have had to be put in an ambulance, which was, would have cost her five thousand dollars that she didn't have. I mean, these these were you know poor people with serious diseases, and that's what medical care is supposed to be. It's supposed to be, um, you know, taking care of people. And 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 you know, it, first story in the Bible is, is, "Am I my brother's keeper?" The answer is yes. Well, this is, as as Ron said, flying by. We're up against our break. want to remind those of you listening that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can choose show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash tsoe, is available for those of you who want our bonus episodes as well as the episodes commercial-free. That Patreon channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. Need a mind? Get one at 90minds.com. But not right now, a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dr. Mark Vonnegut. He's the author of The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics, published this year. And Dr. Mark, I wanted to ask you, you you say that if we refused to take care of children whose parents harbored nutty ideas, we wouldn't have much to do. How do you explain to recalcitrant parents that vaccines are safe? The, I have to agree with them when they say, Oh, well, the insurance, you know, you're just uh, making money for the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance company. And I side with them because they're 100% right. I say, uh, you are right. These guys are liars, thieves, and brigands, but you are still better off with your kids, um, you know, immunized. And I'll also, I don't get into a long um, discussions. I say, you know, 
I'd rather talk about nutrition and exercise or something. Can we not talk about immunizations right now? And I hope you will come to trust me enough that you will let me immunize your children. Um, but I certainly don't, um, you know, emphasize or say that the, the um, you know, the for-profit corporations behind all of this are benign. They're not. Right. You are, and I've never heard anybody uh, suggest this. thought it was really innovative. You say, let the school nurses do immunizations because they don't suffer fools. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Or, I mean, the way, um, you know, in what was it, 1957 or whatever, um, you know, we were all gathered. We all put in the gym. There was no informed consent. There was no money involved. Uh, but you didn't get out of the gym without a polio shot. That was just the way it was. Um, you know, polio was a dread disease. We had a, a way to stop it, but there was there was no wrangling that we have today, like about the COVID vaccine or even the MMR or things we know are effective. People don't trust science. They don't trust doctors the way they used to because they don't know them. Um, and I mean, life was better uh, in terms of society and patients sort of agreeing that science had things, um, you know, worth saying and doctors were working in the service of patients. That was their experience. It's not their experience now. Right. You know, Ed mentioned one of his favorite stories in your book. I, I have one too, because it kind of deals with both sides, but you talk about Adeline, and you say, she taught me more about pediatrics than anyone else. Tell her story. Adeline was born with uh, trisomy 13, which included uh, things like she had an imperforate anus. There was no way for her to go to the bathroom. She had cataracts. She was deaf. She had all of the, and she had heart malformations, uh, all of which usually mean that patients with this condition have a lifespan of under a year. Um, so I told the patients, the, the parents, one of the things I always tell parents uh, who, with a, an interesting patient I, is I say, you are the parents. You get to say what happens and what doesn't happen. But from my point of view, I was saying, well, we should fix the imperfect anus because that's going to get really um, uncomfortable. But we're not, we shouldn't immunize this child. That would just be causing pain for no purpose. Got to be one. Parent says she's out playing in the dirt with her siblings. I said, okay, <laughs> we should start immunizing her. Um, and, and all along the way, um, and there was a, actually one of my favorite calls was from Disney, uh, Make-A-Wish, who, who said, well, what about this girl, Adeline? Uh, should we give her, you know, uh, and I say, I honestly can't tell you what Adeline will make of such a visit, but her family needs and deserves this break. She had four older siblings. And one of the things for me is looking at these um, very Irish red hair, blue eyes, and Adeline had red hair and blue eyes, and except for a split second chromosomal mess up, she 
she would have been exactly like her siblings. Wow, and and you, you know, I was a big fan of the how of House MD, the TV show. I don't know if you ever watched that, but yep. you know, his whole thing was diagnosis, and you know, he admitted that yeah, this is imperfect, and we're going to be wrong a lot. And and you say the same thing. You say the number of times I was wrong about Adeline are legion. Is is that what is that what you meant by this? Taught me the most about being a pediatrician. Yes and being with the family for these decisions and watching how um, it affected her siblings and, uh, you know, making judgment calls of does it matter uh, that she has cataracts? Will, you know, does it matter that she can't hear when she doesn't have any language functions? Does it, you know, and, 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 and those are complicated uh, questions. And then, you know, in the end, to be uh, with my wife at the 16th birthday party of probably one of the only trisomy 13 kids who ever had a 16th birthday. And uh, that's just an amazing story. I mean, you you quote William Osler, who says, you know, the good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. This Osler guy, he's highly quotable, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's got all sorts of sayings. Yeah. And there were, yeah. Um, and, and, and Jonas Salk. And I, I mean, there, there, there have been some wonderful, wonderful, very quotable, um, you, you know, physicians. And mostly it's, it's, it's about being of service. You know, Osler and, and, and Salk were, they they were there to take to, to you know to help people and to be of service dr mark this one struck me too you wrote the only thing dumber than making marijuana illegal is thinking it's harmless to children yeah explain that well i think i i've actually told kids i said you know once you're done with college, you have your own small corporation and whatever, smoke all the grass you want. Um, <laughs> but, but the problem uh, with being uh, young is that it kills ambition and it changes your personality. And you will see this. You will see uh, kids who are involved in music and art and sports and getting good grades and all of a sudden they come in and, 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 and they're you know it's, it's manana nothing really matters except the ex, except the marijuana it just sort of takes over and it does have the effect of uh correlation with mental illness uh later in life if you smoke a lot of marijuana um I, it certainly shouldn't be a crime it shouldn't be something you go to jail for but it also um you know it's not good I remember I had a very young mother who was losing her child to, um, you know, DSS. Um, and she, mostly because she was neglecting her child because of marijuana. And what she kept saying is, but it's legal. And I said, so is Jack Daniels, but it doesn't make you a better <laughs> mother. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. is, is this part of the reason why you also wrote that hiring a social worker was the smartest thing you ever did? Absolutely. I mean, um, 
it, for one thing, they make the whole practice much more efficient. And I, we started doing that before insurers were actually re, uh, willing to reimburse us some for their services because rather than reinvent the wheel, somebody who's really good at eczema and asthma and ear infections um, can say, oh, uh, let me go get you a social worker who will, you know, help find you a therapist who will, will look for partial programs and stuff. And, and these aren't things that pediatricians are good at. And also um, for people to get that kind of care immediately, rather than to go onto a list, um, um, which is now, I believe it's six to nine months to see a psychiatrist at children's or mass general. Um, so we were able to provide, um, you know, services on the spot when we saw the needs. That's great. I just have to ask you this because it's all over the news, but have any of your patients been affected by this baby formula shortage? And what do you advise them? It's, I have, um, I, I like to take, I, I, I said, I'm, I take care of a few babies now, but for the most part, I let the younger physicians, um, because they're going to, they're going to see these kids go to kindergarten and high school. Um, and I have to face the fact I just turned 75 and can't do this forever. <laughs> but, um, uh, it, it was a foreseeable, um, and avoidable problem. That's, um, yeah. And we, stockpiled um thankfully uh we stockpiled some of the um uh, uh fancy formulas and mm -hmm. and you know and and give them to people who need them we do exactly what the pharmaceutical industry does not want us to do we're supposed to give them out with coupons and stuff like that we save cases of them for people who really need them right um tell us about septic shock <laughs> that's we had a rock and roll band and one of the things you know as i can say there are laws now that mean you can't work more than x number of hours and stuff we were working over 100 hours um we were um you know had more responsibility and so far and some way somehow we had a pretty damn good rock and roll band <laughs> and we called it septic shock and that's to me the opposite of burnout is if you still after working that hard have the energy and time to make a rock band you're not burned out and i do think burnout is much more uh, a product of doctors and nurses not being in charge of care as much. Um, we, we, we worked harder and we weren't burned out. I mean, I'm not saying there have always been doctors with all sorts of, 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 of problems, but burnout was not so much of a problem back then. Right. So with all of this, you kind of end the book by saying you're an optimist and we kind of look out there and we see these direct primary care physicians. There's over 1,700 of them. And they, to me, they, it seems like they've, they're restoring that sacred doctor-patient relationship. And they don't, they don't take insurance and things like that. Do you see the DPC movement as solving some of these issues? I think definitely that could. I think there are many parts to it that could. I think doctors uh, essentially have to go
go on sort of a reverse strike where they provide services that don't cost the patient money. We have to follow the example of nurses who don't strike for more money. They strike for having more nurses, which actually correlates with uh, clinical outcomes and patient satisfaction to not have nurses on roller skates going between too many patients. Uh, so I, I think the direct care um, is, is good. The problem uh, I would have with it is I have a lot of Medicaid patients and, mm -hmm. um, and families that simply don't have the um, thousand or whatever you have to charge as a subscription price. But those doctors are definitely um, trying desperately to get back to being in control of uh, of, of care and being in control of giving patients as much time as they need. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Mark, Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home. I just wanted to say thank you so much. It's been an honor to be able to talk to you. I thoroughly enjoyed your book and, and recommend it. I've given it a five-star review on Goodreads. So it's just, just <laughs> a fantastic work. Thank you so much. And uh, folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Ed mentioned the Patreon show that's uh, now sponsored by 90 Minds. And also, if you join our Patreon at a certain level, you can get a shout-out like Blake Oliver did. Blake's at earmarkcpe.com, or you can actually get CPE for listening to podcasts. And now a word from our sponsor and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh, oh my, my fraud. fraud. 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The book is The Heart of Caring. We have the author today, Dr. Mark Vonnegut, on with us. Uh, Dr. Mark, I want to ask you something I think is... Uh, I'm curious to how you're going to react to this. I, I mentioned um, uh, Peter Block earlier, and one of the, the, the sentences that he writes, now he's not talking about the medical profession per se. He's talking about people who help others. He, he says this. I want you to react to this sentence. The more care gets professionalized, the more it ceases to be care. Absolutely true. And one of the things I say uh, is that for-profit medical care isn't medical care because it becomes about money. And the way you make money is to take much more money from people than value you give back to them. I would hope it would be the opposite. One of the, the, the purposes of our show and why it's called the soul of enterprise is because we believe that business has a spiritual, although not necessarily religious component, mm -hmm. and that it is about creating value in others. That's the whole point of business. That's right. It's like, it's like it, it truly is like a fire department. You do not want your fire department to make a huge profit. You want the fire department to put out fires. Yeah. You don't want doctors and hospitals to be making huge amounts of money. You yeah. want them to be taking care of patients. Yeah. Be better you don't want there to be fires. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you, if I did if you do the math, what you find out in with a for-profit fire department, you end up um you end up with some very wealthy pyromaniacs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 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 burned out cities because it's simply, you know, it's it's like it's you know, it's like a protection racket. You know, you, hey, you know, too bad if something should happen to your house, so you're gonna have to have a deductible and a and a copayment here, and 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 you pay, and you know, you go yeah. to the neighbor and say, you know, that house burnt down. You wouldn't want your house to burn down. <laughs> Yeah, they, one of the things that we, we believe that all economists agree on are two words, incentives matter. <laughs> Everything else is commentary after that, <laughs> incentive matter. Uh, I want to ask you about this. I, th this really struck me in your chapter, that I believe that is entitled uh, Ebola. You said, there are more similarities than dissimilarities between taking good care of patients with e Ebola and taking good care of patients with diabetes. Basically, medical care should be tailored to the situation. And what doctors and science can do is understand Ebola and understand diabetes and keep it both from hurting the individual and from hurting the community. I mean, diabetes, um, it's slower than Ebola, but in terms of untreated diabetes, clogging up emergency rooms, the leading cause of amputations and, and, and kidney failure and blindness, I, I, I mean, that is, you know, what we are trying to do is protect individual and public health, uh, whether we're taking care of diabetes or asthma or alcoholism or, 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 or Ebola. It's, you know, doctors have to treat parents, patients with what they have, where they are. 
we, we've done a couple of shows about uh, one, one with a, a friend of mine whose whose kid has diabetes and how the the, the challenges of, of uh, the FDA and medical devices have really been a, a huge challenge for, for, for him. Uh, we've also had Dr. Mary Ruart on who's written some books about the challenges of the FDA, including a, a book called Death by Regulation. What, what are your thoughts overall on the, the, the FDA? Uh, it, I mean, would it be better if we had a schema where the FDA just maybe certified med- medication similar to the way that Underwriters Laboratories certifies devices um, rather than them being the, 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 the institution that is the roadblock for uh, things, th- things getting in the way between patients and doctors who want to prescribe certain medications? Yes, and I think more to the point, well, as much to the point, is that there shouldn't be a revolving door between the pharmaceutical industry and the FDA um, because their interests become um, making decisions which increase profits. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, so so I'm going to ask you about this. We've got about three minutes left or so. one of the things that struck me about what happened with COVID was that we seem to be making and the, the, the decisions became quickly politicized all the way up to the at the at the top. It seems insane to me that we should have a national policy regarding masks, let's say. It would have been, I mean, far better to push these some of these decisions down to the community level, and I think it would have been far more accepted than we tried this. In, but instead, we tied this top-down approach. What What are your thoughts on that? I think uh, the politicization—it's <laughs> a tough word. I had to struggle. <laughs> of, of everything—it uh, it hurts medical care as well as everything else, and that's why I think we have to come up with um, a rationale that everybody could accept, and that's what I like. You should not harm patients, and um, and so I think everybody could agree where they couldn't agree on giving the government power or this or that. You can frame things in ways that polarize things. But if you say you shouldn't do things that hurt patients, co-payments and uh, enhanced reimbursements and uh, prior authorizations, those actually hurt patients. So we shouldn't be doing that stuff. You know, it's not right or left. It's, uh, it's, It's common sense for the common good. Yeah, are are you seeing any ramifications of of um, to, uh, COVID and not necessarily lockdowns? I don't want to get the, to, into the politics of that, but the, but the challenge, especially among the young people that you're serving, um, and, and we don't we have a few minutes left. So again, unfair question at the end, but we're social animals. We need socialization to be healthy, and I think that's. Uh, especially true of, of, of young children need friends. I mean, teenagers need parents a little bit, but they need other teenagers more. Um, and so, yeah. And, and, and I do think online learning is good for people who are already good students, but if you're already sort of a marginal student and can check your email or be playing electronic games while your English teacher is online, that's what you're going to do. So I think, I think COVID for many reasons has been, has been very hard on children and adults. Yeah. And uh, 30 seconds, we, do you think we're, we're just un, beginning to unwrap the long-term effects of, of that, of that is what it's had on a, a, 
the said children. Right. You know, we we won't know what COVID did. We won't know what social media did to kids. Uh, and, you know, until these kids are adults. Yeah. Well, this has been a, a very fast hour, Dr. Mark. We were so glad that you were able to, to join us. And re, as Ron said, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Uh, it was a, it's, a, it's a great read. So thank you for sharing your thoughts with the, our audience today. <laughs> thank you, guys. All right. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, Ed, we have listener favorite Joe Woodard. We're, I'm sure we're going to talk about Scaling New Heights, uh, which will go on next year, that you and I are both speaking at. Yeah, so it'll be fun. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours then, Ron. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific and 3 p.m. Eastern time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes with our interview with uh, Dr. Mark today and where you can find his books. Also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. Find out what's happening.